on this idea. It was, it was a great idea. It's like the, the the idea that is proven here of God's character is His faithfulness. It's it's His continued faithfulness to us and to uh, to um, to His values and to His relationship to us and His promises to us of what He has said that He will He will be to us and what He will do for us and what He will do with us. And the idea that he changed his mind on the condemnation for the people who are down down the mountain and they should all die um, shows that he is committed to and faithful to his his covenant. And then the the idea with uh, with the Assyrians too. Uh, Andy, you got your you got your, yeah, you got your Bible open. So it looks look, looks like you're, you're you're ready here, man. I was trying to remember what we talked about, and don't. Uh, still don't. I, I think we actually did exactly what Jonathan was talking about because this, if I recall correctly, this was just in the context of of that part of Exodus. Uh-huh. We sort of hit it as part of that whole sequence that includes, like it's included in the point of the laws right before it and after it. And then we kept going. Yes. Yeah. And so I guess the thing I would say is I'm happy to talk about this moment of repentance here. Did, did God change his mind? I'm happy to, to set it parallel to other biblical stories that have a similar theme, but to make a, a blanket statement of systematic theology based on this is, what, this is what I believe about God, that he does or doesn't change his mind in general, I think is, is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yes, in this story, what does the text say? Well, the text say it says that he relented, or is that our favorite word there? That's that's what uh, I think the C- I think the Christian Standard Bible is what I used, and I know I, I knew Hebrew for like three years of my life, and I don't anymore. So um, I, it wouldn't have done me any good to use the Hebrew. I I would have made up more things than I would have. I would have made up more, caused more problems than I would have solved. Thank you so much. <laughs> my wife knows how much how many times I've been like. You could have made the point without mispronouncing the word and not getting right what it means. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, but just like, it's not important. What you just said was the important part. So just yeah, yeah. My, my first six months of pastoring after I graduated from seminary, I would parse every passage in the Greek that I did, yeah. and then after about six months of that, I realized that every time there was a question between what I parsed and what my translation said, it was right. <laughs> It was writer than I was, and so I just quit. And so now I know no Greek and Hebrew because I never use it. But, uh, I mean, I can still dig out a tool and understand what they're talking about, and that's the reason we take those classes, But uh, which is also the reason they don't take as many of those classes as they did when I was in seminary. I had four semesters of Greek. Now they only take two, I think. Um, But, but yeah, I, I mean, in this passage, the text says that he relented. Now, did he relent knowing that... When Moses interceded on behalf of the people that he would relent? I, I can't answer that question. That's putting words in God's mouth. And, I, and believing that God has everything under control and he knows the future, I have a hard time believing he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And, and now you're beginning to ask philosophical questions that the biblical text doesn't like to answer. <laughs> And you've set me up so perfectly twice, I have to go here. Go, go, please, please. So first, I want to say yes to everything you just said, right? Like, <laughs> like, like we mentioned a couple times last week, like when it comes right down to it, 
99% of Christians do not care about this. This is an abstract philosophical question, and it has nothing to do with the majority of Christians' walk, right? Like, some people, just by nature, it does. Like, this bothers them. That's how they're wired. They have to think through this stuff. And that's great. I love that. I am that. That's great. But absolutely what you just said. Like, that should not be the primary way you interact with basically anything, (laughs) right? Like, no. However, I want to spend a tiny bit of time defending systematic theology. And I'm going to satisfy Damien's requirement that I say what Aquinas said. Because <laughs> he was whining that I didn't actually say it last week because I was trying to not, not <laughs> derail the conversation. I say it because he used systematic theology to get exactly where you just got. Okay. Like his answer, and again, with. Every, all the danger warning labels you just put on systematic theology, sure. I 100% agree with. It's like It is incredibly useful as a tool to think about who God is, pulling from different parts of the Bible and reading that together. Sure, sure. But absolutely, it is almost always used wrong where you take an abstraction that you don't fully understand and impose that on the Bible and then start reading all sorts of crazy stuff. But if you're one of the handful of people whose names generally start with the first three letters of the alphabet, like who did a good job of this in history, it can get really cool. So Aquinas basically said, okay, from the Bible we know... Are you allowed to quote Aquinas if you're an evangelical? (laughs) (laughs) I went to Baylor, which basically pumps up Catholics. (laughs) So I'm going to claim yes. (laughs) Anyway, um, mostly by teaching us stuff like this. <laughs> the, as, a, as, a, as a warning at the beginning, I'm going to say everything I say about Aquinas is oversimplified because he did an excellent job of like justifying every little step. So I'm just going to skip a few steps. But basically he said, okay, we know from the Bible God changes his mind in the sense of I'm going to kill them all and I'm going to have mercy on them. Like, so that's definitely the case. We know from the Bible and from logic that God is not surprised by things. Like, he's not sitting here going, wait, they did what? I never saw that coming. It's like, and from a little bit of scholasticism, which goes back to Greek philosophy and some other stuff, he basically had the idea that God is, well, and the Bible, he had the idea that God is existed before the creation of space and time or space-time. And so he exists outside of time. And so things that apply to us little beings that live inside time probably are not reasonable when applied to God. So he took all these three and several others and put them together and said, you know what I'll bet happens? I'll bet what happens is that God's will is conditional. He's like a, and this is the the example everybody uses is he's like a parent who knows perfectly well that their kid snuck out with his friends when he wasn't supposed to. And he decided if they confess and ask for forgiveness, I'm not going to ground them. And if they don't, then I'm going to ground them. And he's like, and basically what this is, is the parent only has one desire here. And that one desire is for their child to have character. <laughs> like how that's going to be expressed depends on the choices of that child. And so then he works this whole thing out. And he's like, what does that look like if you're one of us humans who lives inside of time, it looks like God is changing his mind. What does that look like if you don't live inside time 
it looks like a God who is just defined by his goodness and his faithfulness. And it looks like he's changing his mind, but he's not really. He's just faithful the whole time. Yeah, you use a phrase there that I don't use very often. That is God's will. I don't, I don't, I steer away from that, that way of describing God's ways because it's been so abused. Has it been abused or has it, I don't know. We just, we struggle so much with that that yeah. I don't. I don't use that phrase. And you know, and you're right about so so here's the way I use systematic theology. I use systematic theology to understand what I am reading when I read scripture. Right. I do not communicate systematic theology to other people because we build a, what systematic theology is just a framework we build right. to understand scripture. And if we're honest, we constantly allow that framework we subject and it's this weird thing that happens when we read scripture and we all bring a pretext to scripture and as we bring that pretext systematic theology life experience all those things we subject it to the scripture we're reading and we allow it to redefine our reality and honestly the, here's the funny thing andy is uh, I've, I've read a we, i spent a semester in, in undergraduate work reading william james the uh, 19th century uh, psychologist. Yeah. Were, were there really psychologists in the 19th century? I don't remember yeah. if that's what he called himself. <laughs> but, uh, but, but he was a 19th century American psychologist. And he said that Americans, he, he was defining American, he, he wrote th these books called Pragmatism and the, uh, uh, what's that other book called? Uh, the Something of Religious Experience. And uh, varieties, varieties yeah. of religious experience. And so he said, and, and since we're Americans, we, we think this way also, and, and the people we talk to think this way. But he said, Americans don't, the, the way Americans define truth is using pragmatism. They ask the question, does it work? And that's why a lot of times you'll have a pastor at a church who's been there three or four years and the church hasn't grown and they say, hey, pastor, it's time to get rid of you and get somebody else. Well, how come? I've been preaching the word faithfully. I've been going to visit you in the hospital. Um, I've even visited you in jail sometimes. And, uh, and, um, and yet you're sending, me, you're sending me down river. Why is that? Well, because if you were the right pastor for us, if you were God's will for us, our church would be growing because that's how we define the truth is, does it work? And you're not working in the sense of you are not effectively accomplishing the thing that we gave you to accomplish. And then Americans define, so that's how we define uh, truth. The way we define reality is, have I experienced this thing? And so all of that to say, Andy, here's, here's how I talk about, this is the way my understanding, talk about systematic theology, and mine's informed by William James. This is the way I talk about that I think the Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit works. Um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit doesn't give us revelation, Scripture is our revelation. The Holy Spirit illuminates that revelation for us. And so I think it's fair, at least in the mind of an American, to think of illumination as the Holy Spirit makes God's Word real to us and allows us to experience what God is teaching in a supernatural way um, as we read Scripture. And so all that to say, as I sit down with scripture and I bring my systematic theology, I allow the experience of reading that scripture to reform, to reshape my systematic theology as I experience the scripture. Um, and so that was a really long explanation. 
That was, was great. <clears throat> was it great? It yeah. was really no. long. <laughs> no, no. It used a lot of words. I used a thousand words to say. No, I, I think anything that needs to be thoroughly explained, or, or at least explored, needs to be thoroughly explored. And that's definitely one of those ones that we need to be careful about, like redefining. Like you, you talked about like taking a, a, a fresh look at the idea of God's will and not being so cavalier with it. Like, like, like you said, like with the idea of pragmatism, it happened, so it must be God's will, uh, kind of thing. Um, Andy said last week. Actually, when I when I went back and listened to it, I stopped dead in my tracks and went back and listened to it again. You, you, you talked about us anthropomorphizing God, yeah. and for anybody who struggles with SAT words, that means to make something, to give something human characteristics. And when I heard you use that word, confuse God for a person. Yes, yeah, and so like, but I, I, I never thought about the idea that we anthropomorphize God. But that's that's incredible because it's like. Because it's actually that's that's completely backwards from what it actually is. Because he, act, you know, he made us in in his, in his image, and we make the mistake of trying to like look at him in, in ours. And so I was like, that's that's some weird feedback right there. Um, but the idea that yes, God has a will, obviously. He has a will that's so strong when he said something should happen, it happened. He looked at water and it blushed and turned into wine. And so like his his will is pretty strong and it exists but it is or or to blood as this depending which story you're reading <laughs> okay oh, oh. dang <laughs> are you sure back you're an evangelical pastor <laughs> <laughs> well no i meant i meant the story that i meant the yeah i was talking about the nile <laughs> but that's where i went in my head too it's like it's a, oh, oh, golly. Uh,